everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Racism in the U.S. works a lot like religious indoctrination. Many of the same tools and techniques are employed, but a lot more violently. Every time I'm confronted with the realization that something I've accepted as truth my whole life is completely wrong, it's the same experience I had each step of the way with my religious deconversion. In my indoctrination episodes, I talked about how the church provides inaccurate information, often in the form of wrong information, but sometimes in the form of half-truths, leaving out relevant and pertinent information that changes the entire narrative. One experience I had very often was realizing that what I'd been taught about the Bible was incorrect. I don't mean the history or the convoluted hoop-jumping that explained away problematic or conflicting passages. I mean outright seeing passages I'd read a million times and realizing they literally did not say what I remembered them saying, what I'd been told they'd said. Imagine reading a passage that says the sky is pink, and later arguing that the book says the sky is blue. Then someone puts the passage in your face, and it says, the sky is pink. Imagine you've read that passage many times, but somehow now it's saying pink rather than blue. I don't know what else to call that except indoctrination, especially when you've been taught that passage says the sky is blue, in classrooms, from the pulpit, in popular media and culture, but it doesn't say that. So how does this idea persist that the book says the sky is blue? No one's hiding the passage, it's right there in plain sight, and you've actually been encouraged to read it. And every time you do, you see blue, until you get into a heated argument with someone insisting it says pink, years after you've been out of that book, and you pick it up, and there it is, pink. I've been having this experience repeatedly with regard to what I've been taught about racism in the U.S. for all of my life. Everywhere I turn, I'm seeing that everything and anything I've been taught, anything and everything I've believed, has been untrue. And what shocks me most is that the truth has been hiding in plain sight. Sometimes, as I explained last episode, I've just been taught to promote things like the definition of racism that benefit and advantage racist oppression, not the oppressed. It took a lot of work for me to understand the damage that the definition of racism can do in the public dialogue. But it's exactly the same sort of damage done to the secular community by the definition and misconceptions about atheism and atheists that the dominant Christian culture perpetuates. I want to talk today about another misconception I've been indoctrinated into that I only recently began to understand more clearly, and that is that slavery was abolished in the U.S. in the 1860s. In school, we were taught slavery was abolished in the U.S. by Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. This led to what amounted to an enforcement war, the U.S. Civil War, that resulted in the defeat of a rebellion and the end of legalized slavery in the U.S. in 1865. I was taught this as historic fact, and so were most of the people my age who went to public school. I had heard the narrative that slavery has been funneled into our penal system, that we simply moved slave systems from the private sector to the public sector, where we used sentences of labor to reimpose a kind of slavery once again on people convicted of crimes. I had a vague notion of chain gangs and sentences of hard labor. 
I thought most of that was abolished eventually and converted into prison programs with low-paying work. One of the most stereotypical and iconic tasks I recall was making license plates. I also am aware that we have disproportionate policing, arrests, convictions, and harsher sentences for black citizens overall. So for me, when I heard that slavery was moved into the prison system, I thought it was a way of saying that metaphorically what we do in prisons amounts to a form of involuntary servitude that has replaced old-school slavery, that it was analogous to slavery in many senses. And that's as much as I thought about it until someone actually put the 13th Amendment in front of me. This was the constitutional amendment that I was taught abolished slavery. I had learned about this in school, and I have no doubt that I was presented with the amendment in any U.S. history class I would have taken. But seeing it now, apparently it says the sky is pink. The amendment itself is extremely brief, written in two sections, and here's the entire content of it. Thirteenth Amendment, Section 1. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Section 2. Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. And that's it. Except as punishment for a crime once someone has been convicted. When I read this, I realized that I was so indoctrinated into the image of people in prisons being punished with labor that I failed to recognize this as a caveat for the continuation of slavery, as though slavery or involuntary servitude as a penalty is somehow magically not slavery or involuntary servitude anymore. The fact is, we've not abolished slavery in the U.S. A friend of mine is a geography and history buff. When I showed this to him, he bent over backward trying to find some way to say that slavery had been abolished because that was what he'd been taught, and he had a lot of pride wrapped up in that learning. When I first saw the amendment text, I just thought, this is the Bible all over again. It says the sky is pink, and I've been taught that it says the sky is blue. What's interesting is that when I googled for penal slavery, I got a hit for penal labor at Wikipedia, where it says that penal labor in the U.S. is explicitly allowed under the 13th Amendment. It's subtle, but notice that the amendment never uses the words penal labor. It says that slavery and involuntary servitude is allowed in the penal system. It's very similar to how Christians who defend biblical slavery explain it wasn't really slavery so much as servant status. They were servants, not slaves. It's the same tactic used here to try and soften the reality that slavery is the topic here not some other thing that isn't quite the same as slavery, something like penal labor. Some states pay low wages for penal involuntary servitude, less than a dollar an hour, some as low as 12 cents an hour. Other states pay nothing for penal slavery. In my reading on this issue, the people promoting this as a great thing for the U.S. economy were shameless. And it's really no different than dealing with religious people who excuse their particular socialized forms of slavery. Slavery as spoils of war to a victor makes sense to them because they're used to seeing it in the Bible. I'm not saying they would advocate for that today, just that it doesn't shock them. Slavery as a punishment for a crime makes sense to many of us today because we're used to seeing it. But we should probably stop teaching that the U.S. has abolished slavery because we have not only failed to abolish it in practice, but also in theory within our own codified laws. This isn't some form of labor that's analogous to slavery that happens to this day in the U.S. 
This is slavery funneled into the penal system happening in the U.S. But maybe, I wondered, I'm reading too much into it. Maybe we just kept a socialized form of penalty. Is my only contention that we stopped teaching slavery was abolished and explicitly teach it's still in use as a punishment for crimes? After all, we strip many basic rights from people once they're convicted of a crime, things we would otherwise never allow, such as imprisonment. But it turns out this wasn't the case of business as usual, and it brings me to the next issue that needed clarity in my head. It involved another phrase I've often heard about our country, that we criminalize, quote, being black, in order to exploit this loophole in the law. And I now realize that is also not speaking in analogies. In response to the 13th Amendment, the southern states facing economic collapse without slavery and the North facing the same dire situation as a region heavily dependent on goods produced with slave labor for textiles and shipping, were left to decide how to cope with their new situation. In response, they created something we now call black codes or black laws to handle their, quote, labor problem, unquote. I can't explain why our brilliant, enlightened U.S. leadership thought it would be a wise idea to let abusers create the post-abuse laws as they pertain to the abuse victims, but they did. These were laws that criminalized existing as a freed former enslaved person, unless you stayed on the plantation and continued to work for wages that didn't offset the cost of rent and goods available on the plantations levied by your former master, now employer. I live in Texas, so let me give an example from my own state from an archived newspaper clipping explaining the new laws and their enforcement. This is entitled, Negroes and the Labor Question, general advance in wages, feelings of the people, the crops, condition of the country. At Galveston on the 27th of June, a meeting of the Common Council was held at which the mayor stated that the board had been assembled by his order to take into consideration several matters of interest to the city. One of them was the altered condition of the colored population, which required new regulations for the protection of the citizens. He regretted to see that some citizens were renting houses to those Negroes who had left their employers, thus giving facilities for establishing various nuisances and committing depredations upon citizens. He had received many representations of Negroes congregating for improper purposes in the houses they occupied, and of many disorders. He had no power to remedy these evils unless a sufficient police force be furnished. The ordinances against the meeting of slaves and their renting houses apart from their owners are now inapplicable. The ordinance against vagrancy could be made available, but requires amendment. The next day, General Granger issued an order in which he says, All persons formerly slaves are earnestly enjoined to remain with their former masters under such contracts as may be made for the present time. Cruel treatment or improper use of the authority given to employers will not be permitted, while both parties to the contract will be equally bound to its fulfillment upon their part. No persons, formerly slaves, will be permitted to travel on public thoroughfares without passes or permits from their employers or to congregate in buildings or camps at or adjacent to any military post or town. They will not be subsisted in idleness or in any way except as employees of the government or in cases of extreme destitution or sickness. And that's the end of the clip. So Texas pretty well covers the bases of anything you might need to have or do in order to leave your former master now employer. First, paint former enslaved people as a threat to white citizens. 
Next, vilify providing them housing or accommodations off the plantations upon which they were enslaved. Beef up your policing against black people and communities to protect white people from these black terrors. So Texas reworked their vagrancy laws to stop black people from hanging out together. They encouraged black people to stay with former masters. However, the master turned employer wanted to contract that because Texas was not going to allow you to have living accommodations anywhere else. Your former master wasn't allowed to be abusive to you, but if he was, you weren't allowed to travel or leave without his permission, so good luck reporting it, because you aren't allowed to be on public roads without a hall pass. And you can't even set up a homeless camp anywhere near a town or military base where goods, services, and necessary resources would be available to you. And if you aren't working, you're being idle, and we're going to make that illegal as well. So get back to the plantation, stay there, keep working, or else police will arrest you and send you back to the plantation where we'll force you to stay put and keep working because penal labor. These were not people acting in good faith. These were some of the most overt racist and white supremacists this nation has ever seen. On a recent thread on my wall, someone was promoting Lincoln as, quote, not racist, unquote, by showing that near the end of his life, he was willing to consider allowing black men to vote if they fought with the Union Army. I didn't even research the claim, because on the face of it, it's an overtly racist white supremacist position. I pointed out that if a politician today suggested this, we'd consider him to be not just mildly racist, but hardcore racist to say that if black citizens want to vote, they need to serve in the military to earn that right that white people are entitled to by virtue of our birth. One of the most iconic figures in the history of U.S. abolition among white people would be considered a raging racist white supremacist today. And even he wasn't at the level of Southern slave owners when it came to how he viewed race and the treatment and rights of black people. But we left it to the states who had murdered, raped, and brutalized black people for generations to decide the best way to handle post-slavery in the U.S. because our leadership believed in states' rights. This led to the 14th Amendment a few years later, which granted citizenship to any black person born in the U.S. and any person naturalized here. However, it's interesting to note that in 1923, a case involving an immigrant from India ended with him being denied naturalized citizenship at the SCOTUS level because he wasn't white enough. Still, this new amendment didn't quite do the trick. And once again, U.S. racist white supremacists did another end-around and drafted Jim Crow laws to subvert the 14th Amendment. They were intended to restrict voting rights of black citizens by using correlations such as literacy— Before black men were considered citizens and given voting rights, it was okay for illiterate people to vote. But after black voting became a thing, suddenly literacy requirements for voting became important. Today we're watching the same thing. In response to record black voter turnout, states who claimed their elections were very secure and reliable are enacting new restrictions tied to a narrative of mass voter fraud, which no one wants to own happened in their state. Apparently, all these years, our elections were fine without voter ID until record black voter turnout. Now, no election is secure without voter ID in place. We're also taking overt steps to restrict voting that don't even align with voter fraud narratives. Limiting voting locations and hours for which polls are open have nothing to do with fraud mitigation. So once again, we watch the southern states looking for any loophole or caveat to exploit in order to deny black citizens rights and privileges to make sure that white people held the advantage in politics, social spheres, and economics. And this led, sometime later, 
to the 15th Amendment. Do you see where this is going yet? It's like a game of whack-a-mole with white supremacists who will look for any avenue to undermine the spirit of the law using real or perceived caveats or loopholes in the language of the Constitution and the law. The law is revised, the new laws are examined, and ways are found to continue to exploit them by racist white supremacists who want to maintain white advantage in the U.S. Our Constitution, which codified slavery and white supremacy into our foundations, had to be amended to allow any enfranchisement of black people, non-white people generally, and women. It had to be amended again and again and again because white supremacists in the U.S. won't take no for an answer when it comes to, can I have a white advantage in this country? The 15th Amendment came along and said that we can't stop someone from voting based on race. And yet politicians to this day have found ways to hinder black votes without saying it out loud. And currently, our courts seem more interested in intention than actual damage. We can't strip a right to vote on account of that person being black. This means I can strip all the black votes I'm able to, so long as I can come up with some other explanation of why I'm stripping them, like literacy, or I don't want polls open 24 hours a day, or fill in the blank. And as if it isn't obvious enough that the caveat of penal slavery was being used to remake slavery in a new image so that it could simply be perpetuated, the southern U.S. actually converted plantations into prisons so that they could do the slave labor right on site. I'd like to read a little bit from a paper entitled Punishment After Slavery, Southern State Penal Systems, 1865-1890. to by Christopher Adamson from York University. This was published in Social Problems, Volume 30, Number 5, June 1983. And he starts with, This paper identifies and analyzes the political and economic functions of the state penal systems in the southern United States after the Civil War. The system of prison administration, discipline, and labor, which emerged after 1865, known as the convict lease system, was a functional replacement for slavery. Like the Black Codes, vagrancy laws, and sharecropping arrangements, the convict lease system was a mechanism of race control used to prevent ex-slaves from obtaining the status and rights enjoyed by wage workers. The organization and philosophy of crime control both before and after the Civil War reflected the fact that both slaves and ex-slaves were problem populations. As such, they were a threat to the existing system of class rule, but also a useful resource economically as a pool of cheap labor for Southern industrialization and politically or symbolically as a means to consolidate white supremacy. So that is Adamson's introduction to his paper. I'd like to read from another article as well, entitled The Straight Line from Slavery to Private Prisons, How Texas Turned Plantations into Prisons, by Shane Bauer. It regards a gentleman named Sample. The year was 1956, nearly a century since slavery had been abolished. Sample had been convicted of robbery by assault and sentenced to 30 years in prison. In Texas, all the black convicts and some white convicts were forced into unpaid plantation labor, mostly in cotton fields. From the time Sample arrived and into the 1960s, sales from the plantation prisons brought the state an average of $1.7 million per year, 13 million in 2018 dollars. Nationwide, it costs states $3.50 per day to keep an inmate in prison, but in Texas, it only cost about $1.50. Like prison systems throughout the South, Texas grew directly out of slavery. 
After the Civil War, the state's economy was in disarray and cotton and sugar planters suddenly found themselves without hands they could force to work. Fortunately for them, the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, left a loophole. It said that, quote, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, unquote, shall exist in the United States, quote, except as punishment for a crime, unquote. As long as black men were convicted of crimes, Texas could lease all of its prisoners to private cotton and sugar plantations and companies running lumber camps and coal mines and building roads. It did this for five decades after the abolition of slavery, but the state eventually became jealous of the revenue private companies and planters were earning from its prisons. So between 1899 and 1918, the state bought 10 plantations of its own and began running them as prisons. Before running prisons, Hutto had been a pastor, studied history, spent two years in the Army, and did graduate work in education at the American University in Washington, D.C., There was little that distinguished the Ramsey plantation from the one Sample had been imprisoned on. Aside from the banning of the whip, the modes of punishment and labor were the same when Hutto began as they'd been when the state opened its plantation prisons in 1913. The main difference between Hutto's plantation and Sample's was scale. Ramsey was as large as Manhattan, twice the size of Sample's plantation, and it had 15,000 inmates working the fields. A handful of years later, after leaving the plantations, he would open the latest chapter of a story that goes back to the foundation of this country, wherein white people continue to reinvent ways to cash in on captive human beings. He, meaning this gentleman Hutto, would create Corrections Corporation of America. And that ends the part of the article I wanted to read. Next, I want to note that Wikipedia deals with Corrections Corporation of America, They note that CCA has been the subject of much controversy over the years, mostly related to apparent attempts to save money, such as hiring inadequate staff, extensive lobbying, and lack of proper cooperation with legal entities to avoid repercussions. CCA rebranded itself as Core Civic amid the ongoing scrutiny of the private prison industry. So today, Corrections Corporation of America is now Core Civic due to problems that they were having with branding. Don Hutto, in the meantime, who started Corrections Corporation of America, worked from 1967 to 71 as a teacher, assistant prison warden, and warden at the Ramsey Prison Farm for African-American prisoners in southeastern Texas. The W.F. Ramsey unit, as it was known then, consisted of five former plantations that used a convict leasing system on working plantations. In 1967, Hutto and his family lived in a plantation home on the prison farm. Next, I want to read from an article called Slavery Haunts America's Plantation Prisons by Maya Shenoir, published in Prison Legal News. On an expanse of 18,000 acres of farmland, 59 miles northwest of Baton Rouge, long rows of men, mostly African-American, till the fields under the hot Louisiana sun. The men pick cotton, wheat, soybeans, and corn. They work for pennies, literally. Armed guards, mostly white, ride up and down the rows on horseback, keeping watch. At the end of a long work week, a bad disciplinary report from a guard, whether true or false, could mean a weekend toiling in the fields. The farm is called Angola, after the homeland of the slaves who first worked its soil. This scene is not a glimpse of plantation days long gone by. It's the present-day reality of thousands of prisoners at the maximum security Louisiana State Penitentiary, otherwise known as Angola. The block of land on which the prison sits is a composite of several slave plantations brought up in the decades following the Civil War. 
Acre-wise, it's the largest prison in the United States. 80% of the prisoners are African American. Angola is not alone. 16% of Louisiana prisoners are compelled to perform farm labor, as are 17% of Texas prisoners and a full 40% of Arkansas prisoners, according to the 2002 Corrections Yearbook compiled by the Criminal Justice Institute. They are paid little to nothing for planting and picking the same crops harvested by slaves 150 years ago. Next, I'd like to share part of a transcript from an NPR interview. All of these links will be included in the description. This interview dealt with a prisoner who got a job in prison with Oriental Trading for 37 cents an hour. This is what he earned, minus his room and board. Prison administrators say it's a way to defray costs of incarceration. Critics say it's a way for prisons to profit off the labor of incarcerated people. Oriental Trading says it doesn't know how much incarcerated workers were being paid. The company paid a set fee for each job to the Nebraska Department of Correctional Services, which has sole discretion in setting wages. Today, there is no central repository of information on prison labor, which means that it's just sort of left up to individual prison systems and state legislatures to decide how they count and regulate prison labor. Dominic was eventually released from prison after being behind bars for nearly 10 years, and after that decade of grueling labor, all they had to show for it was about $300. Initially, Dominic went to Oriental Trading, hoping to get their old job back. Morgan says, I went and applied there and they did not hire felons in the community. Rafian responds, Whoa, 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 whoa. So you were working for this company? Morgan says, "Mm Mm-hmm. Rafian says, Making their tablecloths for 37 cents an hour, and then when you came to get a job with them, they said you were unqualified. Morgan, "Mm mm-hmm. Rafian, To do the job you'd already been doing. Morgan, "Mm mm-hmm. Yeah. Garcia then says, In addition to doing the work of maintaining and operating the prison itself, incarcerated people are often contracted to work for outside agencies or even private companies. Morgan adds, If you need to have at least 100 people inside your prison for that contract to be successful, how much work are you going to do to make sure that you keep enough inmates there to keep their contract going so you meet your yearly budget? For federal prisons, we have Unicor, which is the name for the state-owned corporation that contracts incarcerated workers out to private companies. According to Unicor's most recent annual report, it employs more than 17,000 incarcerated workers doing everything from heavy manufacturing to computer-aided design, and it brings in more than $500 million of revenue annually. Next, I want to read from an article that I found at Sentencing Project, entitled The Color of Justice, Racial and Ethnic Disparity in State Prisons, by Ashley Nellis, Ph.D., It begins, African Americans are incarcerated in state prisons across the country at more than five times the rate of whites, and at least ten times the rate in five states. This report documents the rates of incarceration for whites, African Americans, and Hispanics in each state, identifies three contributors to racial and ethnic disparities in imprisonment, and provides recommendations for reform. In the opening overview, Dr. Nellis indicates... Truly meaningful reforms to the criminal justice system cannot be accomplished without acknowledgement of racial and ethnic disparities in the prison system and focused attention on reduction of disparities. Since the majority of people in prison are sentenced at the state level rather than the federal level, it is critical to understand the variation in racial and ethnic composition across states and the policies and day-to-day practices that contribute to this variance. 
Incarceration creates a host of collateral consequences that include restricted employment prospects, housing instability, family disruption, stigma, and disenfranchisement. These consequences set individuals back by imposing new punishments after prison. Collateral consequences are felt disproportionately by people of color, and because of concentrations of poverty and imprisonment in certain jurisdictions, it is now the case that entire communities experience these negative effects. Evidence suggests that some individuals are incarcerated not solely because of their crime, but because of racially disparate policies, beliefs, and practices rendering these collateral consequences all the more troubling. An unwarranted level of incarceration that worsens racial disparities is problematic not only for the impacted group, but for society as a whole, weakening the justice system's potential and undermining perceptions of justice. That's the end of the quote. So color me skeptical when I hear that the Constitution has been amended to eliminate racist advantage in U.S. white supremacy. It didn't work with the 13th Amendment. It didn't work with the 14th Amendment. It hasn't worked with the 15th Amendment. And I'm not feeling optimistic it can be fixed by trying to do a patch job on a document that was created by and for white supremacists to advantage themselves in a new nation. Currently in Texas, they are working to remove requirements to teach anything and everything that might clue children in schools into this fact of our racist foundations. And I half expect to be reading a headline not too long from now that we aren't going to require the Constitution to be taught at all so as to avoid kids seeing what's actually in it and why we have to keep adjusting it. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.